Bobby's life changed when he met that dog. You know, he was, I don't want to say he was headed back to prison, but he sure didn't have a lot of hope and he sure didn't know much about how to re-enter society. And that dog changed everything. His entire trajectory basically took a U-turn and shot him just on a 45 degree angle upward tick to um, success. What it gave him was a lot of confidence to be able to interact with people. He started to work with us. He started to give his testimony. Hello, One in Four podcast listeners. This is your executive producer and co-host, Bea Spadaccini. The voice you just heard is from Zach Scow, founder and director of Marley's Mutts, a dog rescue organization based in California that also runs a rehabilitation and training program called Positive Change in the California Prison System. Paw as in paw, dog paw, get it? This incredible and inspiring story is brought to you by our citizen reporter, Jennifer Spate. You can listen to her story in the sidecast to this conversation. As usual, thank you for listening, thank you for your patience, and for supporting our work. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining in. I also want to thank our guest, Zach Scow of Positive Changes. They're located in California. I had the privilege of actually having several conversations with you, Zach, but I want our listeners to hear your incredible story and how that's led you to start Positive Changes. So let's start by telling us more about Robbie. He came to me, his family came to me looking to adopt a dog after he got out of prison. And this was an individual that had been incarcerated since he was 17, was getting released, 30 years old, didn't know much about how he was going to enter life, very much a feral human, you know very nervous about interactions on the outside, very nervous of going back, you know, really, really, really in a vulnerable spot. And uh, he and his mom came up to my house and met with my foster dog. Her name was Shadow. Uh, She was a pit bull that was reactive, who had been um, rehabilitating at my place for about four months. And she also had a gunshot wound. And um, so there was a lot for them to relate about. So what happened with Robbie was, you know, a a formerly incarcerated individual who was looking at a very confusing time for him. And by getting a dog, it allowed him to re-enter society, to have conversations with just about everybody he met without that fear of interaction. He started giving his testimony with with us at places like the Mission at Kern County, different um, uh, recovery meetings, and really just becoming a better person every single day, becoming more comfortable with himself, loving himself, getting out of his comfort zone. And I don't know that he would have had the tools to do that on his own, know the medicine that dogs can offer. So we just knew we had to get into the prison system at that point. And we had to bring that medicine of dogs into prison to not only give them the unconditional love that they deserve, but to give them some hope, some access to hope and opportunity. You know, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in the pet space, you know, in the pet industry. And we know these guys can succeed at that. So that's what we did. We kicked off our pilot program at California City Correctional Facility uh, four years after trying to get into the prison system. It took us a very long time, but a warden named David Long, who is an incredible guy. He's worked with Defy Ventures. He now works in parole 
Uh, he's an incredible guy and he took a chance on us and we've been there ever since. It's five years now. We've run, I don't know how many graduations, probably two to 300 men and dogs graduated from just that program alone. Um, many of the graduates from that program have been released from prison in large part due to their participation in our program. And most of the men that have been released from California City Correctional Facility are now professional dog trainers in the real world. But okay. what is your passion for dogs come from? Yeah, I have a deep passion for animals for a variety of reasons. I have been an alcoholic and a drug addict since for as long as I can remember. You know, that was my struggle when I was a kid. That was my struggle through my 20s. And, and finally, in my late 20s, when I was 28, my liver failed. I went into acute alcoholic liver failure. It's called end stage liver disease. So I was given less than 90 days to live without a liver transplant. Um, I was admitted to the hospital for long-term care, and I essentially was just dying with very, very little hope. Zach spent six weeks in the hospital and was getting sicker by the day. He had liver biopsies and blood transfusions and was told that in order to get a liver transplant, he had to have six months of sobriety. In the meantime, medical bills were piling up. And, you know, I'm listening to your story, Zach, and my heart is filled right now with, you know, hurt from my own memories of my own health struggle. Um, when I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I also had very, very little hope. Uh, one, because I had to fight for my diagnosis, but then two, because they actually tried to deny that it was even cancer to begin with. And then when it finally got to the point where I was on medication, um, through treatment, it's like my body uh, was constantly in this new wave of pains daily, along with the influxes of my emotions. So I totally get no hope. But at some point, that kind of changed for you, right? What happened? My first point of hope happened in the hospital when I had a 12-step meeting in my hospital room. And there was a guy who had gone through liver failure in prison, and he's standing at the foot of my bed. And that piece of hope that gave my dad, my dad's looking at this guy going, wait, what? Excuse me? My son's dying in here, with, and we have no hope. And you went through what he's going through in prison? And you're standing here with a tie on in our, in our hospital room? So that changed the whole approach. I ended up getting transferred to the Comprehensive Transplant Center at Cedars-Sinai. I got admitted to that program through the emergency room. We kind of tricked the medical system. And then from that point on, um, I got released and sent home. And they said, listen, you need a liver transplant, period. You need six months sobriety. We're sending you home. This is your mission. Try not to die. Try to survive. Um, try to make it. I went through all of the things you go through. I went through opiate withdrawal. I... Um, really got obsessed with taking my own life. Yeah, I'd never been without drugs or alcohol. So, uh, I mean, everything was terrifying. Everything, just being alive was um, the, the biggest struggle. Every day was the biggest struggle I'd ever faced. Every single hour was, was pain like I didn't know how to, I, I couldn't process. Um, and the only thing that really helped me cope with that pain and that deep self-hatred and that was my dogs. You know, my dogs were that one thing that helped me plug into something greater than myself. And at that time, I was just, my brain wouldn't unfixate from how pathetic I was, how I, how bad I felt, how, um, you know, it was just a very, very dark place. But as soon as I started living for my dogs, as soon as I started plugging myself into them, 
you know, everything changed. You know, it was um, it was actually one particular experience. You know, it was about two o'clock in the morning, it was in the middle of the night. I had gone to the bathroom on myself, which is something that happens regularly in, in liver failure. And um, my dogs were all with me, and I I walked into the bathroom to try to clean myself off. And at that time, I'm 140 pounds. I am completely yellow. I have a nine months pregnant belly. I have a, a hole in my back where the catheter was to drain my stomach. I have all these varicose veins in my belly, in my throat. I mean, I looked like a the sickest sick person you can imagine, you know, and I, I made contact with my eyes in the mirror when I walked past and I just I, you know, I couldn't believe who I was looking at the, the person that I was seeing. I didn't re- not only did I not recognize me physically, I didn't recognize my eyes. And that's something I'll never forget because I was looking at a mirror, looking at a, per- a person was looking back at me through the mirror that I didn't know that I did not recognize. And it, and it terrified me. Then I turn around and my three dogs are right next to the toilet, looking up at me, my pit bull, my cocker spaniel, my Labrador going, just looking at me like I'm the greatest human being to have ever existed. And that not only did they see who I was, that my spirit was still intact, but um, they hadn't lost any hope. They were in the moment, hopeful, knew that we could do this. You know, and I just remember looking at them going, oh man, you know, I can't leave them. What am I going to do? I can't. So it it really facilitated this new thought process, which is I'm just going to try to put one foot in front of the other. Um, I didn't go back to sleep that night. I started journaling um, just about my feelings. I took up, started taking pictures of every sunrise and I just started walking my dogs. I just started putting one foot in front of the other and I couldn't do much back then. I was really, really sick, but one walk a day turned into three walks a day, turned into five walks a day, turned into fostering dogs. And once I started fostering dogs, I started adding more dogs. I started volunteering for a number of organizations. I got into serving other animals, serving, you know, finding purpose in my life. Everything changed. You know, I think, I think it was um, Nietzsche that said, any man that can find a, a why to survive will find a how to survive. And I had found my why, like why I wanted to survive. I found my purpose. Self-esteem is the primary variable that will help us be successful in life. And so many of our incarcerated brothers and sisters don't have the self-esteem they need or deserve to be successful on the outside. And why I love our program so much is it's this incredible catalyst for self-esteem. You know, the guys graduate that program with substantially more self-esteem than when they started. But that's really how Marley's Mutt started. I was just a, a guy in liver failure who loved my dogs. My dogs helped save me. And that sent me on this trajectory where it wasn't even my idea to start the company. People just kept saying, you should do this. You need to do this start a dog rescue, get involved, you know, and and it just never stopped. Here we are 12 years later, and we've got, you know, programs inside of six prisons. We've uh, rescued, I think, 7,000 dogs, um, horses, pigs, goats, cats, um, countless people. Um, So it's a a very natural, amorphous, it's a very original American dream nonprofit story. You know what I mean? Totally. It's like an American tale movie, right? (laughs) Yeah. But it's so powerful and so beautiful, even just from the beginning um, and how your personal story really influenced not just the work that uh, you do for positive change inside the prison systems, but just for the dogs in general. How does that tie into Marley's Mutt? Yeah. Well, Marley's Mutts is the company. Positive Change is a program. So Marley's Mutts is the umbrella nonprofit. And 
Positive Change is one of our programs. We have several programs. We have a therapy program called Miracle Mutts. We have a transport program called Mutt Movers. We have Positive Change, which is our inmate canine training program. And, and you, you hit on something there that I think is really important. Um, <laughs> there's no place I feel more comfortable or plugged into my purpose or um, you know all of my senses turned on than prison. You know, working, get, getting to work in prison with the most disenfranchised, kind of vulnerable, um, deserving individuals is something, is a type of service work that is, is um, incredibly, incredibly rewarding. And my life as a drug addict and an alcoholic and a person who's felt like a throwaway and a person who's really had a hard time dealing with myself, I think really set me up for success working inside of prisons. And there's a lot of guys in prison that be, just because of the way, by virtue of the way we treat them, they feel that way about themselves. And my experience on the outside really set me up on an emotional level to be successful in prison. And, and one of the main reasons we're successful is because our staff, you know, myself included, but all of our trainers, they give of themselves. You know, they're so aware that, that if we can believe in these guys and if we can insert and inject some confidence and self-esteem that, that these guys are off and running, that we can break familial cycles, that we can set up entire generations of families for the future um, to be successful, to have access to their own American dreams. So why our program is different and successful is because it's very hands-on. You know, we're the only program that operates in the pod or in the and on the yard and in the housing unit. Most operate in the classroom. We are surrounded at all times. The entire prison unit is around us. So we imagine 10 dogs, 30 men out on a prison yard working on just like any normal prison yard where it's, you're surrounded with people. So we're plugged into the, to like the fiber, to the heartbeat and the, the, or in the, like the arteries of the prison. So it has this effect of, of, of positively affecting the entire pod, the entire yard, the entire facility. That's so dope. That's so awesome. <laughs> Can you, going back to, it took you four years to actually get into a prison system. Mm -hmm. Can you describe some of the challenges you encountered when you first proposed the program to the prison? So the number one problem we've had working inside of prisons is that our operational procedure needs to meet up with how they work in prison. So if, if our program requires a correctional officer to have to do any more work, like open a door or keep track of somebody, they're going to make us change our program. They, they, if they are going to have to do more work, they want more pay. So um, falling in line with the union has been challenging just to adapt our operational procedure. But other than that, you know, it's really gotten better over the last several years. I think almost all staff have recognized the efficacy of the program and why it makes their facilities safer. So now that we have staff support, now that we have inmate support, we don't really have any hurdles to getting into programs. In fact, we have more prisons than we can count trying to get our program. We just don't have the money to pay for it. Why did the state decide to stop the 10%? I mean, that's yeah. doesn't seem like it was much, but it seemed yeah. like you guys really needed it. It was very, very important. They helped cover our Wasco and North Korean prison programs. Um, since COVID, uh, we've been releasing many, many, many uh, incarcerated folks. So with that, the need has pivoted to housing. So with this emergency need for housing, almost all of the funding went to emergency housing for formerly incarcerated instead of programming inside for incarcerated. 
One of the things that folks don't realize that is that if an inmate, you know, we have 75% roughly recidivism for violent offenders. So 75% of violent offenders will commit a crime and end up back in prison after being released. That is an unacceptable number. We are spending $80,000 a year per inmate just to incarcerate them. So that's the basic math, $80,000 a year to incarcerate one person. That, and 75% of those guys go back to prison. The reason they go back to prison is they don't have access to hope or opportunity. If you have not enriched an incarcerated individual with a skill, with self-esteem, with hope, with interactions outside of their race and gender, how are they supposed to be successful? We have 0% recidivism. Every one of our violent offenders, and these are individuals who have had multiple strikes, these are individuals who have had loss of life crimes. So in other words, the highest likelihood of reoffending, and none of them have gone back to prison. Not one in five years has gone back to prison. That's a really important statistic because that's why we need money for programming. Programming is what sets people up for success on the outside. You know, um, housing is definitely needed, but if we want to bring that recidivism number down, we have to set our brothers and sisters, we have to set them up with access to hope and opportunity. You know, California holds a big chunk of a lot of U.S. debt, right? Not to mention you guys house the highest population mm -hmm. of inmates. So you would think that your segue into a billion dollar pet industry to help boost up the economy would be a great way to kind of, you know, hack that down yeah. um, as far as inmates finding jobs. But it seems like things aren't really connecting. What can yeah. we do to kind of connect the dots? Yeah, we just need to talk about it. We just need to talk about it. You know, part of it is that folks haven't wrapped their head around black and brown folks working in animal welfare and training. We haven't been very inclusive over the last several decades with people of color in the pet industry. You know, people of, of color have not been, we have not done a good job as a society involving people of color in the pet industry, right? But the pet industry is a $70 billion industry that is growing exponentially every year. So here we have our program creates dog trainers, pet industry professionals within the prison system and sets them up for success on the outside. And when you're successful on the outside, you are far, far, far less likely to be to, to reoffend and become incarcerated again. Many of our guys are, are uh, business owners now, they're hiring, they're taxpayers. So th the pet industry itself is, was built on second chances. Rescue itself was built on second chances. I got three dogs in this room at my feet that are all second chances. I'm a second chance. So. The marriage of formerly incarcerated trainers, kennel technicians, et cetera, with the pet industry is just a perfect one because the sky is the limit. They can achieve um, as much as their heart, as hard as they work is as hard as they can achieve, is as much as they can achieve. Are you guys actually in other states? I mean, this program seems like this is kind of what the justice system needs when it talks about actually reforming the incarcerated, right? Are you in other states? We are not. Uh, I would love to be in other states, and we just simply don't have the revenue required to set up in other states. We have all the connections. We have a very scalable you know, product, if you will. Our curriculum 
uh, how we teach positive change, the resources we need, all of that is has been laid out, has been and can be very easily plugged into any municipality. Really, all you need is a rescue, uh, you know, a source of animals and a prison. One of the primary focuses of these individuals is they are rehabilitating and training very vulnerable shelter dogs. We pull these dogs from the shelter and they go spend three months in prison. They live in prison for three months. It's a 14 week long program. So these rescue dogs are training 13 hours a day in prison with teams of three. Those teams of three are a mishmash of races. They don't get to just pack up like they need to. We move them around energy wise. We move them, move them around racially. Um, so the fact that they get to live, breathe, exist, learn, train, rehab as dog trainers and rescuers, not K number 17234 from Oxnard, California, who's convicted of attempted murder. You know, that's a terrible identity to have to live in for so long. And another thing that I think is really, really important to touch on is we have decades, our culture has decades of teaching us that incarcerated people are to be feared as much, if not more than anything else. If you come across somebody on the street that looks like they've been incarcerated, give them a wide berth. And what I'm telling you is if you come across somebody who's been incarcerated and they give you a nod, have a conversation with that individual, acknowledge them, have a conversation. And you just might find that what that person, the strength and the resilience and the commitment to self that that person focused on while being incarcerated for 15 years added something to their personality to, to who they are that is extremely valuable there is a strength and an application and a a a, a level of perseverance and resilience that incarcerated individuals have that should be marveled that should be recognized and how has covid now that we're what almost a year into COVID, how has that like affected the programs in the prisons? We were able to reopen in a modified way. We basically teach at the fence. So we can't be hands-on, but we have a fence separating us and we can talk, we can interact, we can direct, we can do all of those things. But because we've been running a program there for almost five years, we have brothers who have been there for a long time who know how to hold the program down. So mentor trainers, lead trainers can train without us there. So they can also help keep the program moving without us being able to have as much contact. The other program that is open is our juvenile program. It's the same thing. We have the only girls juvenile program with rescue dogs. So the only program in America where rescue dogs are living with locked up girls and rehabilitating with those girls. So that program is back on. It has been for, um, I think graduation is in a week. So, but the other programs are all shut down. Uh, we can't do anything until the vaccine hopefully the vaccine will will be um, entered into the prison system. I think there are some really great arguments being made as to why the COVID vaccine needs to hit the prison system first, you know, both for the safety of correctional staff and correctional, you know, you can't socially distance in there. It's a shame to hear that COVID has definitely hurt many of us in many different ways, but it's so great to hear that you're still at least able to hold on to some programs. It's interesting to hear that the dogs actually live with the girls. So do the dogs stay with the inmates in prison also? First, we interview our guys. You, our guys have to speak to their counselors. They have to not be animal abusers. We can't have certain sexual types of sexual deviance is not acceptable. But then anybody else, you know, we are, we are 
we focus on violent offenders, long-term offenders, because they need our help the most. And, and that's why we're there. So we do interviews. Um, guys get accepted to the program. Most guys re-enroll. So we have guys who've been en enlisted three, four, five, six, seven times. So um, the program will kick off. We'll bring in demo dogs, so dogs with every kind of energy. So the guys have to learn the basics of holding a leash, of how to create a dog, of what how to recognize body language, all of that. Uh, and then they're training the canine good citizenship certification for the rest of that time. So every single day, they're training the 10 points of this certification. So by the time graduation comes, they can do all 10 points of this very, very challenging test. And when they graduate, their dog is basically on his way to therapy certification. So that dog only needs community service, and then he's therapy certified. Our, our graduates get their own certification as dog trainers for having graduated our program. As they graduate more, they can get a certification as a mentor trainer or as a lead trainer. Um, so it's just, uh, it's a magical, beautiful program. They give speeches throughout the program. They have to talk to the group. So they're confronting fears the entire time. They are getting out of their comfort zone because once your feet hit the pavement, once those gates have opened up, life is on. Know, the pace of life when you get out of prison it's for real you can't slow it down it just happens and so what we really try to do is get them ready to face that get them ready to work with problems get them ready to work with clients get them ready to work with one another get them ready to to love across their race to be loved I think you guys do a great job of it from the sounds of it and from the looks of it also from your social media. And I can't imagine creating this bond. Do any of them ever adopt the puppies that they train? Yeah, yeah, we've had tons. So we've had a number of, um, one of our guys, Brian James, he's at Ironwood. Uh, shout out to Brian James. We met him at Corcoran. His family adopted his dog. Brian's going to board in January or February um just wrote a uh, board for him so i'm excited for him to come home but yeah and then another one of our trainers jason he adopted his dog when he got well before he got out of prison and then they were reunited when he got out um i want to say like six seven or eight dogs have been adopted by families uh basically and some of them have been reunited when the guys get out of prison some of the guys are still uh inside and when they are released they'll they'll be reunited it sounds like you stay in contact with a lot of people that were involved with the program, even mm -hmm. uh, beyond release. Can you share a couple of success stories with us? A couple of guys, you know, two of our guys who I'm most proud of. I mean, I'm proud of so many of them, but Jason and Jamal uh, have plugged into the rescue industry in an incredible way. You know, Jamal in particular, he's he has, and this is a black man, has you know served a very long time in prison, 17, 18 years, um, was released and has just thrown himself into not only building his training business, but being of service to the rescue industry. So he takes some of the most difficult dogs and rehabilitates them. Jason does the same. So not only are they continuing, not only are they existing as small business owners with employees, you know, you go from doing hard time for a loss of life crime you're supposed to be a statistic you're supposed to go back you know and now you're within two years you're a small business owner who's you know making a difference in the world and really paying it forward involved in 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 and in really involved in other people 
in our culture viewing formerly incarcerated differently. Because for, for Jason and, and Jamal, when they interact with people, most of those people have never interacted with someone who spent a long time in prison. People need to realize that getting out of prison is just the first hurdle. That staying out of prison is much, can be much harder than, than you know, because our society is stacked against you, both from a cultural vision standpoint, meaning how we view you, and the opportunity we're willing to extend to you. You know, there are a far, far more narrow set of opportunities for you if you've been incarcerated. And that simply isn't fair. It isn't fair. We can I can I say the F word? Sure. <laughs> we have we have all fucked up in our lives. And we have all fucked up immensely in our lives, probably dozens of times. And if we had to be reminded of that fuck up constantly, if that identified us for the rest of our lives, it's fundamentally unfair. It's fundamentally immoral. It is not how the philosophy of ethics works. We're not supposed to be attached to an infraction that we did for the rest of our lives. It's not morally correct. Yet we burden our brothers and sisters with this. These are our brothers and sisters. There's no other way to say it. These are, I've had locked up family. I, I don't know if you guys have, but these are just our people. They're not different from us. They're just our people. And, and we get so lost in this culture of the incarcerated that, you know, we, we have made them into different people. Like they're just different from us. And they're not. They're human beings that need us more than maybe any other group of people. Black and brown incarcerated folks are the most disenfranchised group. Well, next to black and brown incarcerated kids. They're the most disenfranchised group on the planet, you know, and we need to be doing work to offer them legitimate opportunities out of this cycle that in many cases we have put them in. So, yeah, we really have to think about it in a multi-tiered, like very nuanced way. There's a lot, there's a lot that goes into setting our brothers and sisters up for success. It's not just programming on the inside. A lot of it has to do with our mental programming on the outside. Amen. Yeah. I agree. And with that being said, thank you so much, Zach. We appreciate your time and sharing positive change with us and Marley's Mutts. Remember to follow us on Twitter at One in Four Podcast, all letters, no numbers, and follow us on Facebook. You can subscribe to this podcast via Apple iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts.